listening to Strange New England. I'm your host, Tom Burby. When I was a young boy living in Caribou, Maine, back in the 1960s, we had two rocking chairs in our living room. I spent a lot of time in that room, playing with my matchbox and Hot Wheels cars on the floor, building with my Lincoln logs, a generally lost and sweet illusion. You know, life was sweet and completely innocent. I was the master of my own imagination. But then something happened. Something I did a lot of the time without thinking has haunted me up to this day. And it was something I knew nothing about. Something at that tender age that I couldn't possibly have even guessed. You see... When I was lying there on the floor, my foot would invariably find its way to the leg of one of those old rocking chairs, and then, without the slightest thought, I would start that empty chair a rocking back and forth. The rhythm soothed me and gave me a sense of peace. And then one day, my mother was walking through the room and saw what I was doing, rocking that empty chair with my foot. And she stopped cold. She dropped the clothes basket she was carrying, spreading its contents all over the floor, and she cried, Tommy, stop it! I confessed. I looked up at her confused. And what was I supposed to stop? Stop playing with my toys? I didn't think... I couldn't have possibly imagined what caused her so much concern. Stop rocking that chair with your foot. I stopped. Then, like any kid might, I asked, Why? And she looked at me with wide eyes and said quietly, in a voice that was a warning, Never, never, ever rock an empty rocking chair. It's bad luck. But what will happen, I asked, still confused. When an empty rocking chair rocks, it means, she said low, that soon someone will die. And a million thoughts ran through my mind. I thought back to all the times I'd rocked that empty chair. And in the simple faith of my youth, I wondered how many people have I killed by mindlessly rocking this stupid chair. I can tell you right now, I never did it again. And even though I know better now, even though I realize that it was only my mother's belief in a superstition that gave me many sleepless nights, even though I am an educated man and know better, I still make it a point never, ever, ever to rock an empty rocking chair. Just in case. Ghost stories aren't usually easy to research. 
They don't happen to several people at once. They never occur when you have a camera or a recording device. I have seen one ghost in my life, which I will not discuss here. Well, not yet, at least. But I'm certain that if I had such a device in my hand at the time, the last thing I would have done would have been to have the presence of mind to point it at an apparition. Besides, ghosts exist in the corner of your eye and at the very edge of your hearing. They care little for our modern devices. So, when trying to research a good ghost story, you won't find the kind of documentary evidence that would make a skeptic happy, no. People who tell their stories don't usually want to, and often only do so after someone pleads with them to share, to get it off their chest, so that they won't feel like they're so alone. It does a person little good to share an experience that they can't explain, and that keeps them on the very edge of being considered a fool by the world, because... Yes, once, perhaps more than once, they saw something that they cannot possibly explain. And then you listen, and even though you know better, there's something ancient deep down inside you, something innocent, and even though you know better, you can't stop yourself from listening. And though you won't tell anyone, believing. Such is the story of Tina and Kenny Lusk of Waterbury, Connecticut, two professional pilots who moved into a charming Victorian home in Waterbury in the spring of 1990. As they were signing the papers, the seller of the house, an elderly fellow who had lived in it for years, gave them a quiet warning about a disturbing presence within and to expect to experience it at some point. But a story is only a story, and after a year of living in the house with no sight or feeling of such a thing, the Lusks must have shrugged it all off as the imagination of an old man and nothing more. But then, there was that rocking chair in the attic. People who have lived in houses they claim are haunted will tell you there are usually places within the house where they experience cold air or their hair raising on the back of their heads. It could be a room, a corner, or even a closet. In the case of the Lusk home, it was the attic. It was a Victorian house, so the attic was full of odd corners and dark exposed wood and dust, cobwebs, memories. People often leave things in the attic that they don't want, and when they move, they don't bother to take all of them with them. These things are all that remain of the people who have lived and passed through before. They're a reminder that someone was there before, and so it was with this place. A rocking chair, some clothing hanging on a bar, sundry items, toys, and cookware. A window on either side of the space led in enough light to waken the shadows and perhaps something else. Ken was in the attic for a moment to store supplies when, in a moment of silence from the corner of his eye in the corner of the attic, he saw the empty rocking chair left there by the previous owner begin to rock. 
by itself. Ken moved toward it to discover how such a thing was possible, but as he got closer, it abruptly stopped. I kind of just shrugged it off at first, he explained in Charles Robinson's The New England Ghost Files. I attributed it to a draft passing through, and I left it at that. But then the presence the previous owner had hinted about began to truly stir. Preparing for bed one evening, whatever was in the attic began to make itself known to them. Thumping sounds would be heard. Ken would climb the stairs to the attic only to find that everything, everything, everything was quiet and as it should be. And then he would descend the stairs and the noise would begin again. It happened at odd, unpredictable intervals, but it happened. In early August 1991, things became even stranger and more unsettling for the Lusks. One afternoon, while playing with the dog in the yard, Tina looked up to the attic and saw something that should not have been there. Something other. A dark figure was moving strangely in the attic, twisting and twirling in front of the window. The figure seemed to be dancing, she recalls. I couldn't make it out well enough to tell if it was a man or a woman, but it was twirling and throwing up its arms in a dance. She ran inside and told Kenny what she had seen, and she was beside herself with fright. Together, they went upstairs to see somehow if someone, a stranger, was dancing in front of the window in their attic. They found nothing. Ken's response was to shrug it off to dismiss his wife's experience as nothing more than a wild imagining. Tina recalls, He told me that I was letting my imagination run wild because of what the seller had told us. Still, I didn't see how he could take it so lightly considering that he himself had heard those strange thumpings in the attic late at night. But I guess he wasn't ready to accept the idea of a haunting. He's a very rational person. And as for me, she remembers that figure I had seen in the attic window was very disturbing. Although Kenny was able to half convince me that I'd probably just seen a moving shadow up in the window. Maybe a draft rustling through some old dresses hanging in the attic. The Lusks were pilots, and one of them was often gone while the other remained at home with the dog. Three months after Tina saw the strange dancing form in the attic window, Ken was away on a flight and she was alone in the house. Repainting some of the rooms, they kept their painting supplies in the attic, and one afternoon, Tina reluctantly made her way up the stairs to get the paint. She recalls the effect visiting the attic had on her that afternoon. She recalls, While I was up there, I couldn't believe how nervous I was getting. My whole body was shaking. Still, nothing unusual happened and I went back downstairs feeling a little more relaxed. I got more and more relaxed each time, but on my fourth trip to the attic, all of that changed. She was more relaxed, of course, 
there was nothing there, nothing at all. And so it was with a light heart that she began to gather the color of paint she needed and the supplies, and as she bent over to get them, she heard a strange light tapping noise coming from the far corner of the attic, where an old raggedy end all sat propped on a chair. Tina's words speak of a nearly unutterable fear. When I looked in the direction, I saw something absolutely bizarre. You, you're going to think I'm crazy, but, well, the arms of the stuffed doll were clapping and moving frantically like some invisible force was manipulating them. I just froze and stood there in absolute terror. Then a few moments later, the doll came flying in my direction, like something invisible had picked it up and thrown it at me. And at that point, I rushed out of the attic, screaming at the top of my lungs, and when I got downstairs, I ran out of that house. She went to the home of a friend and tried to calm down. She decided not to tell her husband about her experience, fearing that he would lightly brush it off again as nothing more than her imagination. When he returned later that evening, Tina returned to the house but never left his side. The next day, something would happen to Ken that would make him change his mind about his wife's wild imaginings. On the next day, he would meet her. Ken was a hobbyist, a maker of models, and he went to the attic to look for his model airplane glue. He had to move boxes and search, so he was up there for some time, rummaging through a box, when he happened to look up. What he saw there and then defies explanation. He remembers. I suddenly saw the strangest thing. I was, an, well... An elderly woman slowly crawling across the attic floor on her hands and knees. I just sort of stood there, dumbfounded. She crawled past me. She turned her head and grinned at me strangely. Then she proceeded to crawl on all fours toward the attic wall. When she reached the wall, she passed right through it and vanished. And then, in just a few moments, I could hear a strange, muffled chuckling coming from the inside of the wall. It was the most frightening thing I have ever experienced. The couple began to think about leaving the house, but they were not the kind of people to leave without at least knowing why. The wrappings continued, they avoided the attic. They had a friend who worked for the Historical Society in Waterbury and had access to a lot of local history, and what they discovered seemed to at least align with what Ken saw in the attic on that afternoon. Tina recalls, We found out that one of the home's original owners, an elderly widow named Mrs. Bouchard, went insane and starved herself in the attic in either 1878 or 1879. We were at a loss about what to do, we even talked to our priest about it, but he didn't want to get involved. Whoever, or whatever, was taking refuge in their attic, it continued to make itself known. An oil painting they had stored there was torn and defaced. 
Tina's sister Catherine had been visiting and ran from the yard screaming when she clearly saw an elderly woman looking down at her from the attic window. Some houses just can't seem to keep an owner. You've probably known of a place, perhaps near your own house, that keeps going up on the market every year or two. There are places that seem like they can't hold a family. Something pushes people away and out. Kenny and Tina sold their house in July of 1992 to a businessman from Rhode Island who himself moved out and put the house back on the market in 1993. Is it possible that he saw the ghost of Mrs. Bouchard crawling across the attic floor, too? They say that a house doesn't shelter you for long periods of time and then just let you pass. It retains a part of you, residential memory. But here's the thing. We will never truly know the story. The full, unadulterated story of the house in Waterbury with the spirit of a madwoman lingering in the dark corners of an attic. Charles Turek Robinson interviewed the Lusks in November of 1992, again in December and once more in February of 93. He relates the events of the couple as the first of his ghost files in his seminal work on ghosts in New England called the New England Ghost Files. In an author's note to this now out-of-print book, he explains that he has changed the names of all persons and replaced them with pseudonyms to assure privacy and anonymity. The book is a particularly frightening compendium of tales gathered from interviews throughout New England. Most of those interviewed would not have agreed to have their experiences recounted in book form unless their names had been changed. Mr. Robinson has passed away. So it's unlikely that we'll ever know who the Lusks really are and whether or not this entire tale is nothing more than a creative exercise in fear. And that's the thing about ghost stories. They take place in quiet, out-of-the-way places with only one or two people to experience the ineffable. It wouldn't be a ghost story if you could tear it apart, dissect it bit by bit, analyze every minute detail and find a way to explain it away. Nope. A ghost story is a lonely thing. A bit like a ghost itself, to be experienced by one or a few in the lonely dark of an evening, far from the light, far from any explanation, except that somehow something remains long after it should, and it waits there in the corner of an attic for a new tenant in the house below. You've been listening to Strange New England.